Welcome to SKO Unmuted. We're your hosts, Adam Back and Amy Miles, member attorneys at SKO. The attorneys of Stalkeen and Ogden provide strategic legal counsel to clients in the Midwest, across the United States, and around the world. In each episode, SKO Unmuted will bring a lively conversation between our colleagues and other experts, trailblazers, and leading voices about a particular industry or topic. If you're interested in insights that are compelling and applicable to those in the corporate and government worlds, you're in the right place. And now for the legal disclaimer. Please know that the information provided in this podcast does not constitute and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information and content are for general informational purposes only. As this episode was recorded in 2021, the material presented may not reflect the most up-to-date legal or other information. Downloading or listening to this presentation does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the law firm of Stalkeen and Ogden PLLC, any of SKO's attorneys, or any of the presenters in this podcast. Monumental changes are underway in college athletics, and none are bigger than the issues of compensation for student-athletes and the changing role of the NCAA in determining what are and are not appropriate benefits for college athletes. And when considering those issues, the talk must turn to the current name, image, and likeness debate. Name, image, and likeness, or NIL for short, are the three elements that comprise the legal concept of the right of publicity, which protects an individual from unauthorized or uncompensated use of the individual's name, image, and or likeness for commercial purposes. At the moment, the NCAA Division I NIL rules generally prohibit student athletes from endorsing or promoting a product or service or otherwise benefiting from their name, image, or likeness. However, various states have passed laws that expressly permit NCAA athletes to benefit directly from their NIL. The federal government is actively considering whether and to what degree There should be national law governing these and other compensation-related issues. And, depending on whom you ask, the NCAA is either working feverishly or is paralyzed as it tries to determine how college athletes may benefit from their NIL, all before the first of the state NIL laws become effective on July 1st. Arguably, the most impactful current event is the June 21st opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court that at least suggest all of the NCAA's compensation rules may be in jeopardy of violating antitrust laws. No matter how it all plays out, the landscape of college athletics will be forever changed in ways that even non-sports fans will see. I'm Adam Back, a member of Stalking in Ogden and your moderator for this episode of SKO Unmuted. I'm honored to have three incredible guests each a former Division I college athlete, to provide analysis and insights into these fascinating current events and what it may mean for college athletes of all sorts, universities, businesses both big and small, and how we watch and feel about our favorite college and university sports and athletes. We're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Steve Parker. Dr. Parker currently serves as the Associate Professor for Sports Leadership and Teacher Education and Associate Dean for Diversity, Undergraduate Advising, and Student Success at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Parker teaches graduate degree classes in sports leadership and sports law and has served as a mentor for countless student athletes along the way. Dr. Parker, a former Kentucky Wildcat football player and high school football coach, has more than 40 years of experience working in the spaces where education and athletics meet. I'd also like to welcome my colleague, Danielle Day, to the conversation. Danielle is an associate at Stalking and Ogden in the Labor and Employment and Employee Benefits Practice Group. Particularly relevant for today's purposes, Danielle was the two-time captain of the University of Kentucky's women's swim team and won a Division I NCAA championship in the 200-yard backstroke. Prior to joining SKO, Danielle interned with the NCAA's Office of the Committee on Infractions. She's also the author of the law journal note titled, Pay for Play in College Athletics, Why Cost of Attendance, which will be published in the forthcoming issue of the University of Florida Journal of Law and Public Policy. 
Finally, it's great to welcome back to SKO Unmuted, Doug Barr. Doug is SKO's managing director, a very accomplished litigator with a particular interest in the future of NIL and college athletics, and a former University of Kentucky baseball player. Doug is thoroughly knowledgeable about the current legal landscape regarding NIL issues and college sports, including the various state-level approaches and how recent events will impact the future of athletics. Thanks again to all of you. Never one to bury the lead, I'd like to start by asking for a yes or no answer to a single question, which I'm sure you will all elaborate on during our discussion. The question is, do you think college athletes should be entitled to accept payments from third-party sources, meaning parties other than their schools, for use of their name, image, and likeness without NCAA repercussions for themselves or their schools? Dr. Parker, what do you think? Definitely. Definitely they should be paid. Danielle? Yes. And Doug? Yes. Doug, I've seen numerous news items about the Austin decision, but there seems to be some degree of confusion as to what the opinion actually holds versus what it likely means for the NCAA. Can you tell us about the impact of Austin? The Austin decision is monumental, not for what the court actually held, but for what the court has indicated that it very likely will hold in the future. Doug, before you tell us what the court ultimately said, tell us how we got here. First of all, the NCAA, its entire model is based on what they call amateurism. Uh, It is that the athletes, the ones who are providing the labor and entertaining the fans, will not be paid to play. That is the mantra of the NCAA. That's what it's always been. Uh, But at some point in the NCAA history, the NCAA started allowing schools to essentially compensate athletes by giving scholarships. Even though the scholarships were limited basically to tuition, room and board, and a few other expenses. Uh, But the the NCAA rules always have uh, precluded non-education related benefits like signing of autographs and getting paid for it, like signing endorsement deals, things that are more like name, image, and likeness licensing. So that was the state of the NCAA at about 2009. And 2009 is when former UCLA All-American basketball player Ed O'Bannon filed his lawsuit against the NCAA. Can you tell us about that case? Long after his, his playing career was over, uh, Ed O'Bannon noticed that EA Sports had an NCAA basketball uh, game that uh, they were selling uh, with the NCAA's knowledge and blessing that had his an avatar that looked just like him, obviously his likeness, and it had his UCLA jersey with number 31. In a recent interview that I was a part of, of Ed O'Bannon, when he was asked, well, why did you decide to take up this case? What he said was, It just didn't seem fair to me that they would be able to use my name and likeness. I didn't have control over what was essentially my personal intellectual property, my right of publicity. So Ed O'Bannon became the plaintiff in a class action lawsuit on behalf of other similarly situated former NCAA athletes. He filed lawsuit in California in U.S. District Court. And his claim was that the NCAA's rules about name, image, and likeness that precluded athletes from being compensated for their name, image, and likeness were a violation of of what is our oldest and uh, most well-established antitrust law, the Sherman Act. Section one of the Sherman Act says that it is unlawful for parties to enter into an agreement that restrains trade. And that statute's been on the books since 1890. So he also had a claim against EA Sports, specifically for uh, violating his right of publicity. If I remember correctly, the district court agreed with O'Bannon and even suggested that the players could be paid something like $5,000 per season without conflicting with the amateurism designation. Then the NCAA appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit which didn't completely agree with the district court. What did the Ninth Circuit say? What the court concluded was that the NCAA's defense that its amateurism uh, is 
what distinguishes its product from professional sports, that that was a sufficient justification for the restraint of trade associated with the non-educated education related benefits that student athletes may be able to secure, like name, image, and likeness, like endorsements, things like that. So the court agreed with the NCAA that that restraint was probably justified given its business model of amateurism. But the court then concluded that the limitations of compensation on education-related benefits were not justified. And so people probably remember that it wasn't long after the O'Bannon case was decided that NCAA athletes started getting what they call the full cost of attendance. Because what, what many of the athletes were facing at the time was a scholarship, room and board, and some of the other expenses are, I'm not whole. I'm still, it costs me more to go to say Stanford or someplace that's very expensive than what I'm getting in my scholarship. And so the NCAA very quickly permitted schools to come up with ways of giving education-related compensation that included the full cost of attendance. And so now athletes will get a stipend. That was the result of the O'Bannon case. No one asked for the U.S. Supreme Court to review it. With that background, tell us about the Austin case. While all of that was going on, uh, while the O'Bannon case was going on, a West Virginia football player named Sean Alston filed a lawsuit in which he claimed, and his class claimed, that all of the NCAA's rules about compensation, including, was a violation of the Sherman Act. Well, that, that case ended up getting consolidated in the same district court that decided the O'Bannon case, same judge, and so that judge followed the ruling in the O'Bannon case and made the distinction between non-education related benefits, those are justified by the amateurism model, but education-related benefits are, are not. As I recall, the district court also issued an injunction against the NCAA that the Ninth Circuit affirmed. So that injunction required the NCAA to revisit the uh, limits uh, of, of full cost of attendance on education-related benefits. And that would have been good enough, right? Nothing would have changed. But the, the irony of the Alston case that just came out two days ago is that it was the NCAA that asked the Supreme Court to review the Ninth Circuit's decision. The athletes did not. And uh, that, that decision also has some ramifications. We know the Supreme Court ruled against the NCAA, right? So what exactly did the court say? The Supreme Court, in several parts of the decision, in the majority opinion, it was a 9-0 decision. So the NCAA managed to do the impossible, right? They, they have united the liberal justices with the conservative justices against them. But in several places, the decision says, we are limited on this record to only deciding whether or not the Ninth Circuit's injunction about non-education related benefits is right. And we're not taking up the question of whether all of the additional compensation that may be available, like paying players and name, image, and life. We're not taking that up. We're only taking up the, uh, I may have said non-educated, only taking up the question of whether the decision on educational related benefits is correct. And the, and the court affirmed it. And the decision is really a joy to read. It gives you the history of the NCAA. It gives you the history of the lawsuit. But the big news is that uh, Justice Kavanaugh issued a concurring opinion in which he went further, a concurring opinion, as the lawyers listening to this know, but maybe others don't, is not law. You can't rely on it. It's dicta. But in the concurring opinion, Justice Kavanaugh basically said, if we get the question of whether uh, the NCAA's rules against non-education benefits violates the Sherman Act, almost certainly uh, we will conclude that that, that those limitations are unlawful as a violation of the antitrust laws. So I, what we expect looking forward is that the NCAA is going to have to take that into account. Uh, they are meeting today, Adam, as you know, right, as, as we're speaking, to take up the, uh, the question of whether to allow NIL benefits in light of all the state statutes. There are 19 of them that have been passed uh, that permit athletes to get compensated for NIL. So the NCAA is going to have to take into account what the court said, and that is your entire amateurism 
model may be a violation of the antitrust laws and you may have to just pay players or come up with a system of compensation that doesn't violate the antitrust laws. So that's the that's the background. It's a massive decision. Danielle, let me ask you, what is the value of a scholarship to a Division I NCAA school now? What were your experiences as a scholarship athlete? I appreciate you asking this question because I do think that this is an aspect of the entire collegiate athletic experience that especially recently has kind of been forgotten. You can consider us, or you know how I was, free labor, but we weren't free labor. We were receiving, as a scholarship athlete, the full cost of tuition, which goes from, I don't know, in the tens of thousands to, you know, twenty to $60,000 a year, room and board, which, you know, is getting more and more expensive with the increased facilities on campus, nutrition, all sorts of apparel from the school sponsors. We had at Kentucky, thankfully, basically unlimited access to tutors in any class that we were going to take at the university, as well as unlimited academic advising. We had preferential scheduling for when we were registering for classes. We got to register before most of the regular students. That's due to our limited availability for class because of practice. But it's definitely an advantage to be able to choose those classes that you want to get into. We get better availability of tickets to other sporting events. Here, I was able to attend a lot more Kentucky basketball games than I would have been if I was a normal student. And I think those benefits, and then we can add on cost of attendance, which is a kind of its own beast. Depends on the school you're at, but is supposed to represent the average cost of flying home and suits and all sorts of other right now poorly defined things. But that's an extra couple hundred to a thousand dollars a couple times a year to each student athlete. So it really adds up. And then not to mention that all of that is tax free. So that is even a multiplier on top of all of those things. I, as an athlete, felt it was really important to take advantage of all of the opportunities that were provided to me. So I really made sure to utilize the academic advising, the nutrition services. We have all sorts of sports psychology and all of those things really added up in my opinion. So when I was an athlete, actually, five-ish years ago, I felt like I was being valued and I was receiving value for my participation in my sport. I think, you know, the world has changed since then. And so my, my thoughts have changed. But I do think it's an overlooked aspect of college sports that we do get close to $100,000, if not more, depending on your sport and your school. And that's a lot of value, not to mention the value of a college degree moving forward throughout your life. Dr. Parker, as a scholarship athlete in the 70s, can you describe for us what your quote-unquote compensation was to play football at the University of Kentucky? I got a full ride. I was recruited all the SEC schools and outside the SEC to play, and it was a full ride, you know, which is room and board. You got books. You got your tuition paid. We got meals, except on the weekend, particularly if during season, you got a certain amount of money for meals. And they were like, I mean, for two days, you might got 10 to $15. Uh, we got $15 of laundry money for a month. <laughs> um, uh, that, was, that was about it. We ate in a regular cafeteria, and so the cafeteria closed a certain time. And, you know, I was, I was weighing, 200, weighing over 230 pounds. And I also was a physical education health major, so I had activity courses in there, and then I have football practice a lot of times. So I was burning, I was eating any sometimes anywhere 4,000 to 5,000 calories a day, but I couldn't get that. So my parents and my roommate's parents always supplemented us, you know, with food. And then we had uh, some people that worked at uh, Tasty Old Donuts <laughs> and that bought us food too. And the weekend was a challenge. I only live, I'm from Paris, Kentucky, so I don't live very far. So I used to take guys home with me and we used to chow down. As a matter of fact, my father, uh, he bought two turkeys for four guys, and we ate everything but the bone, you know. And so because everybody was hungry, I mean, that, that's the thing, because you have these big guys, and they burn a lot of fuel. 
And so that was pretty much. And we didn't live in dorms like they do now. <laughs> they don't even call them dorms. They call them living facilities. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was a quite interesting experience, uh, you know, playing at that time. But we were more proud about being able to play at that level. You know, it's kind of like those athletes the first time they realized that they were on in a game. You know, we were kind of like that. We just didn't know any, everybody. Doug, before we talk about the likely or expected changes in the NIL arena, I wanted to ask you currently, who are the winners and the losers, so to speak, given the current compensation system for college athletes? Well, the, the winners are the, uh, uh, the schools, obviously, that are able to make a profit. It's not actually, people don't seem to realize that it's, a, not, a, it's not the majority of schools that actually make a profit from their, from their uh, involvement in NCAA sports. But those that do, and we're in Kentucky, and our two big Kentucky schools are able to make a profit, they're big winners. Coaches particularly are big winners. And in the briefing in the Alston case, there were a number of amicus briefs that were filed. It was pointed out that there have been antitrust cases and other kinds of cases by college coaches about the limitations on their salaries. And they were able to have the market determine what their value is. And so it's not unusual to have college coaches who are not even head coaches make more than a million dollars a year. They are winners. Just about everybody except the athletes are the big winners because of how much money is at stake here. Even in schools that don't actually make a profit, that there are contractors who do the building of all the facilities all over the United States for schools and their sporting events. There are quite a number of winners, but the athletes, I love that Danielle pointed out, all of the things that a scholarship athlete can get. You can thank Ed O'Bannon for part of that. But one of the things that gets lost here is that, and the nature of an antitrust case is that it's not the market that's making the determination of value. And so the athletes don't have the power at this moment to negotiate value, but they do get compensation. Everybody recognizes that, including the Supreme Court, that a scholarship is compensation. And the value of a scholarship and all of those other things that Danielle listed is more than just how much it costs to provide it, because the value to Danielle is that she got a college education and any good economist can tell you, here's how much a person in Danielle's position over their lifetime will make, how much more they will make because they have a college degree. Danielle's case, a law degree, which is even better. The actual losers, in some cases, it's easy to say all the athletes are losers. Actually, some of them, I was a walk-on. I would have been a big winner to be paid a scholarship, right? Because I didn't have any, any subsidy to go to school and I would have loved to have had it. But the losers actually at the moment are those athletes that are star athletes like Ed O'Bannon and like Sean Alston that could have negotiated more than just the scholarship from the number of schools that were recruiting them. And to that point, Doug, we you mentioned that there were 19 or so states who have already passed legislation regarding NIL issues for college athletes. I understand there are a number of key differences in those various statutory schemes. What can you say just in general about them and the importance of this July 1st date that is looming? Well, the, the importance of the July 1st date is that as we sit here, because we haven't heard what is happening at the NCAA meeting today, it is unlawful. I'm sorry, it violates NCAA rules for athletes to, to monetize their NIL. And these state statutes, all, all of them have basically two provisions, and there's a number of sub-provisions. But basically, the first provision is it's unlawful for the schools that are within that state's jurisdiction to preclude student athletes from monetizing their name, image, and likeness. So that, that is a, um, a fairly substantial collision that's about to happen between the NCAA and those state statutes. And the NCAA is going to avoid the collision by just allowing it. That's my prediction. But the other part of these statutes is they attempt the way all commercial regulation statutes do. 
in most states, they lay out some limitations. For example, one common limitation is that the athletes who want to enter into a, an NIL contract have to give the school a little bit of notice. I was reviewing the Mississippi statute, which goes into effect on July 1st. If you're an athlete and you're gonna enter into an NIL contract, you have to give seven days notice to the school so that the school can look at the contract and determine, wait a minute, is this something that's going to violate our, the school's intellectual property rights through their trademarks and logos and things like that. And But they also in the statutes generally say that there are some endorsements that athletes are not permitted to do, that it's okay to say, you can't do this. For example, it, you can imagine you know, what might happen if you saw your star quarterback uh, doing an endorsement for a gambling establishment or, one of, or something like that, or you know, alcohol or marijuana or a number of those other kinds of things. So the statutes have that in common as well. Most of them talk about things like whether a whether it's okay for a student athlete to engage a uh, a representative in the form of a lawyer or even an agent some states say you can't use agents some states say you can use agents that's one of the things that's in there and several of them adam have a, a provision that i think is is interesting uh or relate there are related provisions one of them is that the NIL contract has to be for market value. And what they're trying to get at is to avoid the situation where a booster says, I'll pay you $5 million for a license to your NIL to, to advertise my small business, right? And the idea being, I'm just overpaying you to get you to come or stay at my school. Some of the statutes actually do say that, that none of these contracts can be for the purpose of getting an athlete to, to come to the school. So there's a lot of things that are, that are common among them, but there are some that are unique, like the agent thing. But the, the statute in Georgia is different than the others in that it Georgia tries to pool all of the resources that are raised by all athletes, they all get paid into a pool that then gets paid out to the athletes after their eligibility is over. And you can imagine that's a, a laudable idea, but Alabama doesn't have that. That might give schools a recruiting advantage over Georgia. So there's so many differences. I think that ultimately what the NCAA does today is it just allows NIL and ask the athletes in the various states that have statutes to go ahead and comply with those state statutes. And then those states like Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio that don't have statutes, the NCAA is likely to permit those schools to come up with their own set of rules to try to govern NIL contracts. Danielle, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, can you briefly summarize the difference between revenue-producing sports programs and non-revenue-generating sports programs? And then secondly, can you talk about opportunities for athletes that participate in either type of program? What are some benefits that would come from uh, permissible NIL opportunities for student-athletes? Most schools have, especially those in the Power Five, have I think anywhere between 10 to 30 individual sports teams just depends on the university. The revenue producing sports would be those who at the end of the year, based on their own expenditures and their own profits, they're in the black. So that is typically going to be your big players would be men's basketball and men's football. I think at most schools, women's basketball also falls in that category, as well as maybe men's baseball and women's gymnastics, depending on the performance of the, the individual teams. So those are your self-sustaining sports. The rest of your sports are going to be those who at the end of each year spend more than they bring into each institution. Those are generally your Olympic sports, including my own beloved swimming and all sorts of other teams, track and field, cross country. They don't bring in as much money and they generally rely on the revenue generated by the revenue producing sports to sustain 
those non-revenue producing sports as far as providing the facilities and any other costs that are brought about by the seasons. For your second question, for the non-revenue generating athletes, there are going to be quite a few opportunities brought about by this change in NIL rights. For myself, I believe under current NCAA rules, I couldn't have, while I was an athlete, advertised to teach swim lessons and put on the flyer that I was an NCAA swimmer. That violated the rules because I was advertising and utilizing my connections to make money. If and when this changes soon, athletes in all of these sports will be able to utilize their their own history, their own expertise, and their name by putting on camps, doing meet and greets, signing autographs, and benefiting from it instead of doing a lot of those things and not making any money. They're not going to be your $5 million Nike contracts that your football and basketball players might have, but they do bring you know a couple thousand dollars here and there, whether that's in the town where your university is or whether you're going back to your hometown where you generally have a little bit more of a following as a non-revenue athlete who who was good enough to attend a D1 school. So I think there's an obvious impact and the Alston case was specifically guided towards and the class included those revenue generating sports. But there is a significant impact on individual athletes in the non-generating sports as well, not to, you know, significant monetary extent as those revenue generating sports, but the camps, swim lessons, autographs, and even small endorsements related to your sport. And then separate from that, I think we've seen this a couple of times over the years, the non-revenue generating athletes sometimes have a big social media following completely unrelated to their sport. They might run a nonprofit. They might have started their own entity company already. And those athletes under the current rules are unable to benefit monetarily from any type of side hustle they're, they're doing in addition to their school and their sport. These rules will change that. It will allow the non-revenue sports to become a quote-unquote influencer or, you know, start their entrepreneurial journey earlier than they would have under the existing rules at the time. Daniel, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, one of the things I always said when you have a person that's a pianist that signs uh, at a university on a full-time scholarship they can go out and do lessons, they can do recitals, they can do all kinds of things for money, and no one says anything. There's a GPA that they have to keep, but otherwise no one says one word. Other people in scholarships, they don't have any limitations on the money they can make. And that goes more into the NIL regulation sphere on how much are these schools and the conferences and the NCAA going to get involved in regulating the contracts and the ways that these student athletes are making money. Non-athlete students are able to basically do whatever they want as long as they maintain good standing as a student. I don't necessarily support the idea that the schools and the institutions and the NCAA should just make it a free-for-all because I would hope that the schools and the institutions would provide guidance. I think This is a big change, and based on my own personal experience, even in high school, but especially in college, you feel much more of an adult than you may be in many aspects. And I think that's only exacerbated by your position as an expert in your sport. You feel much more mature than you are. So as a 17, 18-year-old entering college, someone... You know, whether it's your $10,000 camp contract or a $5 million Nike contract, that, not a child anymore, but not a full-fledged athlete needs some guidance financially, legally, logistically, on all sorts of different aspects. And I, I just hope that the schools have to find a balance on how much regulation versus how much guidance they're going to provide to different athletes in different situations. A lot of your Division I basketball and football players are socioeconomically disadvantaged. And I know of students now that send money, and you're dead on, about uh, being able to have uh, financial consultants and people that are credible to work with them and and teach them how to use their money, you know, in the best way. So that, this is, uh, this has become, I mean, becomes, it's bigger and it's more complex 
than meets the eye. Doug, what role do you see the NCAA playing in these sorts of NIL issues going forward, knowing that there's state law that's going to go into effect very soon? Uh, Obviously, the NCAA is not going to preempt state law in the um, relevant jurisdictions. What What's what's the NCAA to do, and what, if any, role does the federal government have, which we know they're currently at least considering these issues as we speak? Well, the, that's a really good question, because the NCAA has been lobbying Congress for a long time to pass legislation that relates to their amateurism practices. That what they have been asking for to date has been for Congress to give them an exemption to the antitrust laws. I don't think that's going to happen, although the Supreme Court uh, in the Alston case mentioned that if you, know, if you want sanction for this practice, you're going to have to get it from Congress because uh, your practices clearly violate the Sherman Act. So they're going to continue to lobby uh, Congress to pass laws. And there are it, depending on what, how you count them, there are six to 10 different uh, bills pending in Congress right now. The best thing that could happen is if Congress passed a statute that governs NIL, at least, uh, for NCAA athletes that is uniform and preempts all the different state statutes, because it will be a mess. And there are, and sometimes state legislatures are well-meaning. I think Georgia obviously is very well-meaning in trying to protect the students. But the thing that the NCAA can do, apart from trying to use its influence in Congress, is actually help the student athletes and provide guidance for the schools about best practices. Because the earlier question you asked about who are the current winners and losers, when the NIL compensation goes into effect, the biggest potential losers are the student athletes. How's a student supposed to know what's market value? How's a student supposed to understand uh, without more education that the schools can give? How are they supposed to understand what the value, what ways can they make money? How can they avoid being sucked into contracts that are that are truly onerous to them. For God's sake, the Beatles signed contracts. You know, when they first came out, that were terrible for the Beatles because they were unknown and they were well represented. They didn't have any limitations. There's a big potential for abuse. Dr. Parker, if that does come to pass, July 1st comes, certain states' statutory schemes go into effect. The NCAA has said that schools outside of those states can basically make their own NIL uh, scheme uh, on their own. What would that mean for both those schools within states where there is a statutory scheme and those schools in states where there is not a statutory scheme? It would be devastating. It would be, you know, for recruiting, uh, for instance, um, you know, Alabama's always in football, always been, they're, they're dominant. They would become more dominant. You know, or in swimming, you know, I know uh, Florida's always really good in swimming in Auburn. They, they could become more dominant because there's people out there want that to happen right now. So if, if we don't have some type of universal policy and procedure and, and, and to govern all this, it, it's going to be who's the high bidder for these athletes. Dr. Parker, what role should or could universities play in protecting their student athletes from predatory practices? And if not the universities, what about the conferences? I think it, I think it starts at the conference. I think it starts at the conference office. And once again, I'm, I'm a great believer in being a policy person. I'm a great believer in uniformity and, and being able to have that and, you know, in terms of and make things universal you know, what's fair. So there are some guidelines for, for them to do. If you turn it totally to the universities, I mean, there's going to be different po- policies and procedures per university. And the biggest thing is you want to protect the athlete. I've seen it happen where athletes, even at the pro level, where they lose. There are research out there to demonstrate to a lot of professional football players after they stop playing a broke within five years. It's not saying because you're socioeconomic disadvantaged that you're not intellectually capable of dealing with your money. 
it is saying that you're not used to having that and everybody has their handout and that's another issue is that people even in your own family have a handout if you're not even doing anything they want to get a loan or something of that nature i've been been there and done that and work with some people have faced that situation so I think it, if you're going to do anything, and we need to take a step back, I greatly believe that athletes should get paid, but we need to take a step back and come up with a universal policy and procedure in how to deal with this. And if we don't do this, it's going to be total chaos. And teams are going to lose in terms of being able to recruit athletes. So say for Kentucky has a different, different legislature compared to Alabama, Georgia, anywhere like that, everybody's going to lose. And if they don't care about the athlete, and this goes way back, athletes uh, are vulnerable. They're very vulnerable all all the time. All you have to do is you only one play from your last play. I tell people that all the time. And so uh, the NCAA has done a really good job of the academic part of it in terms of that you had a certain percentage per year to be eligible to play the next year. And so we're graduating more people than we've ever graduated uh, in college sport. So I, I think it has to come down to universal, you know, I, want, I keep harping on that. It has to come on a universal policy and procedure in terms of how to deal with this. And if you don't, you're going to have chaos. I think in addition to all the reasons Dr. Parker has discussed for that need for a uniform policy, going all the way back to the NCAA's claimed amateurism is the reason why people watch our sport if you don't have that uniform policy and individual schools or states are making these rules it will be viewed by the common people who who consume the product that's created as unfair it'll be some people will view it as cheating it may allow cheating if there's not a uniform policy that can be properly enforced the NCAA already has a huge job on its hand to enforce the, the rules that are uniformly in place already and have been for years and years. If we go into this without a uniform policy, it's going to be basically impossible to make sure that the rules are being followed. And if it gets out there that the rules aren't being followed, then I do think that that may lead to general skepticism of the model. This is one of the most complex things to work with that you can come up with What you got kids, 18 to 21 year olds, and this all this money that we gotta deal with. And that's what's so, I, I'm really skeptical how we're gonna put this together. Well, we've certainly established a compelling need for uniformity. And with that in mind, I want to suggest some provisions or aspects of a uh, yet-to-be-created uniform statutory or regulatory scheme and get your thoughts about how important it would be to include these particular features, so to speak, in a uniform law. I'll start by asking about the right of a university to control the use of its logos, trademarks, uniforming, those sorts of things. Danielle, what do you think about that? How important would that be? So I think, as there probably will be for many of these provisions, there's going to be a balance. I do think that as an athlete, especially one who is in a more non-revenue generating sport, it is important to utilize, at minimum, the basic logos of the university. I don't think it's as important, and I, I don't necessarily believe that your football players or your softball players should be able to add patches for sponsors to their uniforms. So I think that might be getting a little too complex, a little too, a little too out there, but I do think that being able to include certain basic indicators of connection to a university would be beneficial, especially for the non-revenue generating athletes. Dr. Parker, as more money flows into their sports, as their voices are amplified via social media, what is the effect on student athletes? You know, athletes are becoming more powerful. 
I mean, in, in being able to control, and even down to swimming and other sports, they become more powerful. If you start thinking about it, that whole situation that happened uh, this past uh, summer, well, the, the, in the fall, when the Mississippi uh, running back said he's not going to play for Mississippi, period. He's not going to play unless they do something with the flag. And, and so things got done with the flag. <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, straight up. And we're seeing athletes are becoming more – it's hard to be like the NFL in terms of their collective bargaining because Division One athletes are spread out all over the country, you know. And I know NFL, you know, they are. But NFL, they have team uh, representatives, and they can come together and get things done. Whereas it's that young per that young man from uh, Northeast Northwestern that really tried to get things started, try to get a union started, athletes, and it's almost impossible to get a union started but we start seeing things start crumbling down uh, this in this past summer the summer for last in terms of athletes being able to use their power and finally said listen and this is what's happening when it comes to the money I mean they're finally you know it's like the you know the book that's written know your worth <laughs> you know and uh, I don't know if you've ever read that Danielle but I mean you know it's an excellent book by uh, uh, Mika you know, MSNBC. I mean, know your worth. And the athletes are finally realizing what their worth is, and they're firing back. Yeah, I think I think yeah. you saw that earlier this year yeah. with Sedona Prince sharing the state of the women's basketball uh, facilities they were provided compared to the men's basketball tournament facilities. I think social media gives athletes more of a voice. They can get out whatever, whether it's praise or criticism of their individual institutions or any other aspect of it. It's going to be heard, and with our generally sports-crazy country, it's going to be received and probably going to, to have an impact, whether it's you know small or larger, as, as her tweet, I believe, did. Well, you know, the NCAA doesn't have to uh, follow uh, Title IX. They, they don't have to follow Title IX because they're not, an, an, you know, an education institution, you know. Uh, and so they're an association. <laughs> so they don't have to follow that. Now, you know, with that said, uh, I thought it was – I'm glad they got called out on what they did. Uh, but they, they should have been called out because that's totally wrong. I mean, there's some things that policy and procedure and the law shouldn't have to come into play for you to do the right thing. Yeah, Doug, you, you did us a great service by highlighting Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in the Austin case. And uh, my question for each of you is twofold. Number one, how long in light of that and other changes, many of which we've discussed here today, how long before we see the question of compensation in the broader sense to student athletes answered or at least addressed in a, in a definitive way? And number two, what does that mean for the so-called non-revenue generating sports if, that, if, if compensation is permitted on a much larger scale for student athletes? Doug, let me ask you first. What do you think? One thing, and, you know, we can't be held accountable for our predictions about the future, right? So uh, let me make one. I actually think that the direction that this is going is that those Power Five schools will end up forming their own that version of the NCAA. That will reduce the number of athletes, and they will ultimately pay the athletes the way that, that real professionals get paid. And there will also be additional educational uh, related benefits. And what I think will happen probably in the next five years is that the power five, maybe power six and a few others that are, you know, that are in the, the big time football game, at least, will uh, reform, have a different kind of uh, NCAA in which they end up paying. That way they can, um, the, the, you know, they, maybe they'll be able to have an agreement that, that has salary caps and that sort of thing where they're not violating the antitrust laws. For labor unions, there's an exemption, as we all know, from the antitrust laws and manage it as more like a minor, minor league system. And what the effect that will have on non-revenue sports is 
probably that there will be less funding, which is terribly unfortunate. But at a minimum, it will be more like the NCAA was envisioned originally, which was these really are amateur athletes that aren't getting paid anything more than really a scholarship. So um, unfortunately, I think that's probably what happens. But there's a thousand different things that can happen between now and then, like Congress could act or or something like that. There, There's way, way too much consumer demand for college sports for this to get screwed up to the point that it goes away. It's going to be around in some form or another. Uh, but I, I think the way it's going, you, every year you hear about expanded football playoffs, right? Uh, because there's money in it. There's a there's enough smart people working on this, and there's enough at stake economically that sports will survive, but in a different form. To answer your questions, one timeline wise, uh, I imagine in the last couple of days there have been a lot of lawyers drafting complaints in various courts and different, you know, iterations. I believe they will come in all manner and all sorts of fashions as fast as people can get them through the system to a place where they get an answer that they want that says colleges, you can pay your athletes in some way, shape or form direct payments. Unfortunately, I do think that without a significant reallocation of spending, it kind of dooms the non revenue sports, which are generally your Olympic sports Our system is uniquely situated globally in that we are the only country I'm aware of that has such a strong connection from middle school all the way up through college with that school and the sports. It is what drives a lot of the consumerism surrounding it because even if you weren't an athlete, you have a connection to your school and your school is directly connected to a sport. It's important to a lot of the aspects of the whole industry and I would hate to lose that for the you know just the industry generally but specifically those non-revenue sports another impact would be a general decrease in performance probably of the United States at uh, international meets generally more specifically the Olympic Games I think that if you allow the universities specifically athletic departments, to pay what will probably be the revenue-generating sports, they're going to be spending millions of dollars on the 10, 20, 30 football players and then your 10 to 20 basketball players. That's going to take money directly away from your non-revenue sports, money that they need to upkeep facilities and you know have the basic necessities. Schools are, as a result, going to cut those teams unless they can find some other way to support them. Whether that funding could come from specific donors, from outside industries, from just a general reallocation of where the money comes in and goes out, or even maybe from the International or U.S. Olympic Committee and or, and or the Paralympic Committee, because that international performance is so important and it is a direct result of our continual and well-funded Olympic sports that are connected to our schools. So, you know, outside of the all the other great lessons that I think sports teaches you, the money going to revenue-generating athletes will take it away from non-revenue-generating athletes and decrease the funding and opportunities they have to develop and become elite in their individual sports. Daniel, speaking my language, um, I'm a great believer that academics and athletics can enhance one another. Um, and so, you know, if you start looking at P-12 through or K-12, through as some people, you know, talk about it, I think I think it's really important that those things the sport is there and stays in schools because it does. If it's done properly, academics and athletics can enhance one another. And uh, if you know this whole thing is like I keep saying is very complex, is that you know if it does hurt the Olympic sports and it's like Danielle's talking about, it will have a trickle down effect to the high schools. It would have a trickle down effect to the league teams, all those type of things. It will. 
On the other hand, you'll have this other situation that you'll have parents will go to any length to get their athletes in position to make that money. <laughs> and their athletes might not be capable of making that money. So they'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, trying to get their athletes at that level, and they, they're, they're not. So I, I, I agree with you, Danielle. I'm really concerned about that part, that part of it. Well, this has been an incredibly enlightening conversation for me, and I appreciate the unique perspective each of you have brought to these issues. Uh, so thank you very much. So in closing, let me ask you, Dr. Parker, and then I'll ask Danielle and Doug, any parting shots, so to speak, any closing thoughts on this topic, whether they be predictions or concerns or whatever the floor is yours i think universities need to brace themselves in how they're going to deal with this with also their state legislators i i think that's going to be you know anytime you deal with you have education and state legislators deal with as you can see we have a lot of controversy now with certain things uh, with state legislator in the universities so and universities are always concerned about funding <laughs> too so we're gonna it's gonna be a quite interesting overall with state legislators and universities being able to come to some type of agreement how they're going to do some things danielle i think that we've made clear today with this discussion that it's generally accepted that the athletes should be able particularly to benefit from their name image and likeness rights but i think we've also shown light on many of the implications that aren't necessarily reflected in the big flashing headlines about this case and the NCAA generally. And to be honest, I think we haven't covered them all. There are going to be more that we haven't thought of, and schools and students and conferences and the NCAA and the legislatures, state and federal, are going to have to come together to f figure out a way to create a system that deals with all of these implications and then is able to enforce that system. And I think that that's a pretty tough task, but that's where we are. As Doug mentioned earlier, there's a lot of smart people in these rooms and uh, everyone, at least I hope, <laughs> has the best interest of all the parties, particularly the, st the student athletes um, at heart. And so I guess my parting thought is that this is complicated, but it will get done. It might take some time, but hopefully we'll get there and, and student athletes will benefit from this development. Doug. Uh, I, I keep thinking of Ed O'Bannon and Sean Alston, who were, they were the named plaintiffs in these class actions. And uh, Adam, you know that in class actions, the, the named plaintiff gets all of the negative publicity and there's not that much to sort out at the end. And so it's a, somewhat of a, a thankless uh, endeavor sometimes, and it was certainly for Ed O'Bannon. He didn't hardly get anybody to do what he did. But the it, it, the the um, uh, courage that it took for them to take on the behemoth is really, really impressive to me. And it, because we all know in our hearts, this it, it's not fair. What's happened to student athletes is just not fair and a better, more fair system can be worked out. And so I, I salute their courage and uh, they've made some good changes. And I don't wanna forget that this is the, the law part. This is, a, this is a law firm's podcast, right? The law part is I don't want people to forget the good that was done in the Alston case in particular, because Judge, Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion is gonna be the headline. But what the court did was to say that the limits on education-related benefits are a violation of the antitrust laws. And so what will, may ultimately happen, and Dr. Parker, your institution, the University of Kentucky, their statement 
anticipates this, that in the future, instead of one-year contracts, you'll get a scholarship for just one year and we'll think about renewing it at the end of the year. Now we're gonna have lifetime contracts. We're gonna have scholarships that the athlete can come back no matter what time in their life and finish their degree. Uh, Danielle, in the future, it's possible that you would be able to negotiate not just an undergraduate scholarship, but a scholarship for law school as well in exchange for your, for your athletic services. So the Alston, I don't want to bury the lead on the Alston case and act like what the court actually did wasn't that much. It was a lot. So you said it at the, at the top, Adam, that this is a, a monumental time. There are monumental changes afoot. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of sorting out of interest. There's a lot of, of uh, a lot more work to do uh, by a lot of smart people. But in the end, I think we, we will have a fairer world. And that's a good thing. Again, thanks to each of you um, for your time, your thoughts, your insight, your analysis. It is very much appreciated. This is Adam Back. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of SKO Unmuted. And remember, persons needing legal advice should contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to their particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information in this podcast without first seeking legal advice from an attorney in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information presented herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Downloading or listening to this presentation does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the law firm of Stalkeen and Ogden PLLC, any of SKO's attorneys, and any of the presenters in this podcast. I'm Adam Back. And I'm Amy Miles. And if you're interested in future episodes of SKO Unmuted, please follow us in your favorite podcast app. If you have suggestions for upcoming topics, or if you'd like to share feedback about this episode, please email us at unmuted at skofirm.com. Thanks for listening.